This is the Six Figure Creative Podcast, episode 163. Welcome to the Six Figure Creative Podcast, where our mission is to help you turn your creative passions into a stable, reliable income. If you're in audio, video, design, photography, or really any other creative field, and you just want to learn from other successful creatives, you're in the right place. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Creative Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood, and I'm here with my big, bald, beautiful, purple-shirted, refuses to wear a large, even though he's a large guy. He's still in a medium shirt, six foot one, 200 pounds. My man, Christopher J. Graham. How you doing today, my dude? I just love getting introed, man. I'm doing great now. <laughs> it's always a surprise. I, I just make it up. I don't know what I'm going to say today. It's, Sometimes it you're sexy. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Feels good. Yeah. So uh, how are you? <laughs> oh, I'm doing good, my dude. I, uh. I'm enjoying my new background that I have in my place. If, if anyone is now watching the video podcast, because we used to just only be audio. So anyone who's listening to the audio should go listen, watch our video podcast on YouTube. I like took some time to make the room a little better, to make the vibes a little better. And I'd like to know what you think, Chris. What do you, do you think it's, it's a little better vibes or it's too much? Is it too extra? It's a little extra. And, <laughs> and we've talked about this a little bit. I, I think you need better lighting. Yeah, you're, I agree with that. I, my lighting kind of sucks, but... That's what you get when you get like a relatively cheap LED kit, but you know what? Yeah. I like it. I, I think like it, it looks better great, than I had <laughs> Oh, there's a stranger in the, Wait, in the, in the video. What was that yeah. noise? Yeah, who was that? Park. I hear Actually. a podcast guest sitting next to me in my very own office. Amazing. I got to say, Brian, now that I'm sitting here next to Chris, uh, you call him big, bald, beautiful. He's not big. He's regulation oh, sized. I'm regulation He's like, sized. You're like, you're 6'2 or something. Like, you know what it is? You're okay. like I'm regulation giant. Ohio size. Oh, Ohio wow. makes him bigger. That's true. Jay, how tall are you? I'm 5'10". Okay. Yeah, so you, 5'10 is a good size, like a good tall dude. But next to Chris, you're just like, I'm short. That's why I call you big, Chris. Not because you're, I don't call you fat. Oh, you're not fat. tall. You, you, mean, yeah. you don't mean, okay, yeah. I wasn't totally clear on that this whole time. So I've been saying that for <laughs> three years. <laughs> okay, I, I guess. All right, let's, let's, let's rein this in. So today's guest is Jay Klaus. He has a podcast called Creative Elements, which is also, one of the cooler podcast arts that I've seen, which is like, he's got the elements table behind him. Go listen to the podcast. It's, it's a, a good supplement to the Six Figure Creative Podcast. And uh, he is also the founder of something called the Freelancing School. Is that, is that right? That is correct. Can I, can I mention something real quick? You can buy freelancerschool.school for 400 bucks right now. I, I, I went to that site, by the way, and it was available for 400 bucks. So Freelance School? Yeah. Yeah. 400 yeah. bucks? 400 bucks right now. Just so uh, you know. Maybe, maybe I'll do that. I love dot I school know. domains. Now I got to do it before this airs or it's going to be gone. Let's take a hard left turn here. I have to tell you guys the story of how Jay and I met approximately 15 minutes ago. So Jay and I have a bunch of mutual friends. For some reason, Columbus, Ohio is like a dope place to be a creative businessy person. So it really is. you're here. You know, Ben Hartley. I don't know Ben Hartley. He does the six figure photography podcast and is crushing He's at 30 minutes up the road. You know Andy J. Pizza? I know Andy J. Pizza. His office is upstairs. Uh, Josh Hall is also in Columbus. He does a web design podcast in Big one. Should he, maybe he should be an, our, our guest. He should be our guest. Anyways, let me talk, about, talk to you guys about what was so ridiculous. So I got the studio all set up and I got a brand new flavor of LaCroix and I put them out. One for me, one for Jay. It's Limoncello today. And Jay walked in with a freaking Yeti cozy, and inside of that Yeti cozy was a can of limoncello LaCroix. <laughs> Complete insanity. Because which, I, which I'm going to go ahead and say I, I, I hate that. I hate that you guys both had it because it's literally the worst flavor that exists. I love it. 
only it's a close second to the worst other second worst flavor, which is key lime, which you guys both love. I think I haven't had key lime, but uh, limoncello. I'm going to say, I mean, pomplamoose is always going to be number one for me. But ooh, controversial opinion. Not into it. Not not into grapefruit generally. Grapefruit to me is like it's the worst of the fruits. It's not even fruity. It's very bitter. <laughs> it's not fruity. That is a fact. It is off on its own as like it's sort of in the orange family. But it has like a, you know, grapefruit, actually, if you drink grapefruit juice, there are certain prescription medications that react really bad with it. I think that should be a sign. <laughs> I agree. We need that. Now you have the little star that goes across the screen that's like, the more you know. <laughs> Maybe we should all start a band called the Grapefruit Conspiracy. Or Ooh. we can start a podcast that talks about business instead of the recording. What do you think about that? Let's do it. That's a Dude, great that. idea. The best transition in the world or the best segue in the world back to business. This is, this is brought. So here, here's the thing about Chris and, and Mr. J Klaus here is they're like, Chris, J Klaus is simply a calmer version of Chris Graham. And so I have to usually rein in. Probably smarter too. Small haired and ugly. Now I have to, I have two people I have to rein in for this episode. This will give me a fun one today. <laughs> so, so Jay runs something called freelancing school. And I actually, I found you via Google. Surprisingly, I was looking up like starting freelance business, just like looking up some topics on that. And you rank number one on Google for the term, how to start a freelance business, which is really cool. And how uh, many so miles kudos- away from here do you live? Uh, 10. So what are you doing here? What am I doing here? This is weird. I love it. It's crazy. Columbus yeah. is a great place for creative people. Like it said. sure is. Man. Valuable addition, Chris. Thank you for pulling me back off topic. So <laughs> back on topic here, <laughs> valuable addition, 10 miles away. today. I, we brought Jay on to talk about a subject that I think is a little scary for a lot of freelancers and one that I think is something that Jay is great at based on his experience. He's, his clients include Atlassian, LinkedIn, Smart Passive Income for any of you Pat Flynn fans, lynda.com, uh, which is now I think LinkedIn Learning and Ohio State University. Or you said the Ohio State University. You scalded me for not putting the word the in there. Scalded you. Yes. You, you literally, you, ah, you, you like, sh- you shame me. You put the, you rang the shame bell from Game of Thrones. In Ohio, you're not allowed to call it Ohio State University. You have to call it the Ohio State University, which is actually a dig at my alma mater, Ohio University, which is not great branding on Ohio's part. Like the two biggest <laughs> colleges are the Ohio State University and Ohio University. Jay, before, before we started this interview today, you talked about something I want to bring up before we even talk about the sales conversation. And that is three, the three types of ways to make money as a freelancer. And this is, I, th- I think, a great launching point for the discussion of sales before we even get into sales in general. Yeah, totally. I, I see it as three paths, which don't need to be mutually exclusive strategies. I think, especially if you're getting started, you can pursue all three of these or a mix of all three of these. The first one being direct-to-client sales, where you talk with a client, you sell the project, you scope out the entire thing, you handle all the details. You interface with them directly and, you know, you're responsible for delivering the final product. That's kind of the bread and butter, what freelancing was born to be. Then you have subcontracting where you work with another agency or entity. They sell the projects to the clients. You're brought in to implement, execute, deliver part of that project scope on their behalf. The clear downsides to that are sometimes you don't get to interface with the client directly at all. If you do, you're usually underneath the brand of that agency or entity, and you have to represent them. Uh, you don't own that relationship. You also have pretty much no control over when projects come in. So it's really hard to count on 
those subcontracting type relationships. But when they happen, it's great because you don't have to do any selling. It comes to you. You fulfill your obligations. And sometimes if you don't want to interact with clients directly, it can be really nice. Can you give us an example of, of a relationship that might be like a, a common area that, that freelancers might work with agencies? Because I know in the, in the recording world, you don't really see that, which is my background in, in, in audio production, music production. You don't really have agencies in that world. So everyone is pretty much either on uh, direct to client or they're on a marketplace of some sort. Yeah, what I see most often is I'll see creative agencies that are selling like branding. Let's just call it a branding project. They may bring in a separate partner or another agency to build the website. They might bring in somebody else to do the copy for the website. They might bring in a photographer to do lifestyle photography. Any one of those component parts, which could be a large project scope entirely, they might bring in a freelancer or uh, an outside agency to fulfill part of that. I, I don't know if I've seen in the audio world. It seems like it could be that an agency sells like a video project and they might bring in an outside audio engineer to help with that. But funny story on that. That is actually how we know each other. Brian Skeel, one of my favorite people in the world, Great a guy. mutual friend of ours, was my mix engineer. And so my story is I started this mastering company. I grew it really big. And like five times a day, somebody would be like, do you offer mixing too? And I said no, like hundreds of times. And then finally was like, I'm just going to bring in a mix engineer and we'll profit share. And I, I met Brian down the street and heard his work and was like, oh my gosh, you're, you're amazing. Brought him in and it was awesome until uh, he learned too much about business and had to quit because he was so successful, which makes me so ridiculously proud of him. It's amazing. Yeah, it's like he's crushing it's a, it right it's now. It's a bittersweet feeling when someone under your wing leaves you because they've become too successful. That happened to my last yeah. assistant. It's like, yeah. oh, you learned and you did the things. Oh my gosh. And you don't. Yeah. Really, really cool. But Brian, it was so funny. Like I reached out to Brian because we, I think Brian had mentioned you to us maybe a few times and somehow it came up and I texted Brian and was like, hey, would you let know let Jay know I was going to reach out? And he's like, well, I've been telling Jay about you for three years. So I think he's wait. So yeah, wild. it's wild to have that connection that plugs perfectly into the story. So in our industry, occasionally you will have what are called white label projects, yeah. where it's basically, you, especially for mixing and mastering, not so much for producers or anything like that, but a company that has a lot of leads says, hey, we do this project for us, but we don't want to credit you. Go for it. And I did credit Brian on every project we ever did, but it, Brian wasn't like, we didn't advertise his name or anything. It was like, hey, if you're looking for mastering yeah. and you don't like your mix, maybe you should get it mixed first. And then I'll send you over to Brian and Brian will walk you through that process. And it was awesome. But it, and I think it was awesome for Brian too, is he didn't have to worry about trying to find projects. Mm -hmm. He just, he had a, every single month, well, we had a, a ridiculous amount of consistency over, I think like three years. And it was cool because it just grew and he grew and he just became like this incredible sales guy. Just so good. I, I, I would, he would reach out to these potential clients and have a conversation with them. And what made him such a good sales guy, he's just so easy to like. Mm -hmm. He's so upfront. He's so clear. He's so, and he listens. And he listens, which is really important. Yeah. In the subcontracting world, you know, a lot of people will hear this and they're like, why don't I just do that? I can just sell an agency on a relationship as opposed to a client and I can work with them over and over and over again. And Yes, potentially, definitely, yes. And that can be great, especially if it is augmenting the projects you're selling yourself because, like you said, it could just drop in your lap and you're like, wow, this is, this is great. I have a new project next month and I don't have to worry about where money's coming from. The challenge is people like to work with 
the people they like to work with, right? Yeah. So like you and Brian, once you built that relationship, you're like, Brian's my guy for mixing. If some other mixing engineer came to you and said, hey, I want to work with you. Would you mind keeping me in mind for subcontracting deals? You're always going to go to Brian first. That happened all the time. And that was part of the weird thing with our, our podcast is we'd, I'd tell this story, parts of this story, not as much as I just shared. And people would reach out to me all the time and ask about being a mix engineer for me. And I knew Brian before the podcast took off. And much to Brian's credit, there was a lot of competition for his job. I never for a moment considered like handing it to somebody else. He was just yeah. so consistent and so good at sales. And a lot of this, and we can kind of get into this more later, but we had an awesome system that made it easy for us to work together. Yep. And when I say awesome system, I mean like actual apps that I made to make that interfacing really easy. All the files showed up in predictable ways, labeled. You know, he had a whole invoicing system where he, he never had to do math mm. to invoice me. We had everything calculated and it was awesome. But the fact that we were able to work together was really due to the system. It made it so much easier to interface and just to put him in a spot where he had nothing to worry about, about except mixing and selling. And that system, whether it's custom built apps or things like that or workflows, like that exists in all those relationships too, even if it's like pretty informal where it's just, we have a shared vocabulary and we have yeah. a shared understanding and this person's just a professional. So when I plug them into a, into a project, I don't actually have to tell them anything other than like, hey, show up here on this date and they show up. Like that saves so much time. It's so valuable to these yeah. people. So if you are thinking about going the subcontracting route, it's really a relationship-based game. It's probably a numbers game to start. You got to try to meet a lot of people and form those relationships. When you get a chance, you have to just crush it. Be somebody that they're like, wow, it was so easy working with that person. It was like magic working with that person. And I think in the beginning, it really comes down to how do you make yourself stand out as the perfect answer for this one situation? You know, if, if Brian would have come to you and said, I'm a mixing engineer, but I work specifically with indie bands that use banjo, you know, you might think, okay, well, that's never going to come up. But if you did work with an indie band who uses banjo, you're going to remember that. You're going to say, that I know the perfect person. For was that. his niche, except that it, they had to have the word hey or ho in the bridge <laughs> of the song. And if, the, if that was part of it, then Brian would work with them on their. You just described an entire decade of music. <laughs> or the Lumineers. That's yes, true. That's basically it. That's, what, that's all we're talking about. All right. So you, you talked about two of the three ways to make money as a freelancer. The first was direct to client, which to me is the most common, at least in our world, in the audio world. The second was subcontracting either from someone like Chris, who's just a, a freelancer himself or through a full on agency, someone in the bigger world. And I'm sure that that may be some of the clients you've had in your past because you're kind of from the startup world. We didn't really get into your backstory here, but that's kind of relevant to how you're, you're looking through this worldview is from the, the frame of like, the startup world, which is so much different than the world Chris and I grew up in. And then what's the third, the third type of uh, way of making money as a freelancer that, that is worth touching on? The third one is a freelance jobs marketplace. Probably the most popular is Upwork, but there's also Fiverr, there's uh, Flex Jobs, there's Solid Gigs. And these platforms work really well for the people they work well for, but it's tough to get started there now because there's a ton of competition. And until yes. you have some reputation on those platforms, it's really hard to win projects and to get reputation. There's a ton of downward price pressure because there is so much competition. So it's really hard to get started if you haven't already. If you are getting started, expect that you'll have to do some gigs for prices that don't make you happy, unfortunately, until you build a bit of a reputation. But if you do that, if you get over the hump and 
you have really high satisfaction scores there and a good portfolio, you can really charge pretty much whatever you want because people go to those platforms and they're looking for usually one of two things. The cheapest route that they trust to get done or somebody that's just a real professional they know will do it really well. And in the beginning, you probably got to compete on the cheaper side. And then once you build a reputation, you, you really have a ton of people coming to you, offering you work, and you don't have to worry about going out and selling. You just open your inbox and you pick the projects that you want and it, it can be really great but it's uh, tough to get started. Yeah, I think it's very appealing. Like we had Alex Fasulo on the podcast on episode 155 where she talked about how she makes over 300 grand a year off that. And she's made over a million in the last like five years or four years alone on, on Fiverr, or maybe in the last three years. Anyways, she's done incredible on that website, but she did start out kind of like picking up nickels off the floor for, for lack of a better phrasing. Like she was just doing for 10, 15, $20 projects here and there. And it really wasn't making that much money in the grand scheme of things. And she ultimately figured it out and she did well. However, the reason people go to those sites and they flock to those sites is because they're scared of selling. And I think that's, that's really mm. what we want to address on the, the majority of this uh, interview today is how can we as freelancers sell ourselves without feeling awkward, without feeling sleazy, like without being one of those people that you just cringe when they say something, you know, like when you're just like, I know that person's full of shit. I don't want to be. So I, I want to focus in on the direct to client conversation because that's where a lot of our our audience is. And that's the area that I think you have the most control long-term sites like Fiverr. They can just pull the floor out from under you at any point. The algorithm can change. They can decide that the Fiverr tax is no longer 20%, that it's 25, 30% of your income. Same with Upwork, some of these other sites, you're putting all your eggs in that basket. And for that, I can't personally support that being your main revenue driver uh, as you're growing your business. So let's talk about the sales for freelancers in the direct to client. Let's do it. I got to say, I want to start with some real talk because anyone listening to the show, they, I would wager to bet, got into freelancing because they wanted to be able to make more money than they're making at a job. They wanted to have more time or at least more control over their time than they had. And the, the tragedy of so many freelancers is unless you embrace the fact that this is a business, you're not going to be rewarded with more money or with more time. You're going to be working more hours than you've ever worked, making less than you've ever made. And that just really, really sucks if, if you got into this for the inverse. And I get it because will, a lot of- I will, I will push back a little bit and just say, I know some of our audience would be willing to take a massive pay cut just because they love doing audio or video or design more than they love their day job. But that's not, I don't want to diminish the point, but I just, I want to say anyone that thinks that, like it doesn't mean you can't ignore the business stuff or the sales stuff. But I just want to say, if, if that's in your head right now as a listener, like I don't want to make it more than I'm making now. I would take a pay cut to get out of this damn job. You still have to understand how to, to make a bare minimum to pay your bills. So even if that's, if you're not like, I need more money, I'm willing to take a pay cut. Yeah. So I'm repeating myself. Go ahead, Jay. And I get it because, you know, as creative people, we've probably had a bad experience with business as an idea or with being sold to. I don't know what it is about, especially Midwestern upbringing. We seem to have like a lot of uh, shame around the idea of mm -hmm. selling. And I think it's because the best sales are totally invisible because it's just what's expected and appreciated in a situation. And you don't think of it as a sale when it happens. You just think of this person helping you and now you're getting that thing that you wanted and you're happy about that. When you realize sales is happening, it's not good because the person's not listening or they're being pushy or whatever. So you can just resolve to be the salesperson who people don't even realize sales is happening because they're just grateful that you're helping them and you're getting them to where they're trying to go. That's like the thing I want people to realize. There's actually, this really came to me 
was listening to an interview with a comedian, Pete Holmes. You ever listened to You Made oh, It Weird? I love Pete Holmes. Okay, so Pete Holmes, uh, comedian, but was also an actor and a bunch of stuff. Recently had a show on HBO called Crashing. I loved it. Crashing was great. He was talking about when he was doing the audition process for Crashing as a director, he had a realization that when he was just acting, he would go into auditions and think like, oh, these people want me to fail. Like, this is really hard. It's really intense. But when he transitioned to being the person hiring in the auditions, he realized that everyone who came to that door, he wanted them to be the answer. He wanted to stop doing interviews. He wanted to be confident that, okay, I found my person as quickly as possible. And the same thing is happening when people are looking to hire help, I think. They are trying to get to that outcome as quickly as possible, but they need to be confident that you are the answer. And that's just like how you show up to these conversations. Not only should it be, you know, really natural to get to the solution, which is hiring you, but you need to lead that process because when we trade our money for something, it's because we want an outcome. You know, you go to Starbucks and you see the menu and you see the prices and you say, I want that. Here's my money for it. And you leave and you're happy and you're like, I got what I wanted. Same thing can happen in a services world where you say, okay, it's very clear to me what you're selling. And I know I want that. And you told me the price and I'm happy to pay that. And there we go. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be this gross wolf of wall street. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just like, you can just be very direct. I actually, the, the, the less I tried to sell things, quote unquote, the more successful I was because it just became a uh, matter of fact that this is the price. There was no emotion involved. It was clear that I wasn't just like trying to win one over on these people. We'd have a conversation and I would say, okay, let me just repeat that back to you. It sounds like your problem is this and the outcome that you want is this. Is that correct? And they would say, okay. I say, okay, so what is your timeline? Like when in a perfect world would this be done? And they would tell me a date. And I say, okay, well, for that to happen, we need to get started by this time. And, you know, whether you want to go back and mock up an actual proposal and put numbers together and say, let me, let me crunch the numbers to get back to you. That's fine. Or like for me, a lot of my stuff was productized. So I could just say like, okay, well, this is the cost. You know, it's going to be a monthly retainer. It's going to be this many dollars per month. We can start on this date. That's going to get you to the outcome on the date that you want. You know, and it's basically like a take it or leave it. It's like, do you want to keep moving forward? And where a lot of freelancers struggle, they'll send a proposal and just not hear anything back. And they'll be like, what do I do next? Do I follow up? How oh, many, they hate me. How many times do I follow yeah. up? And the reason that you lead the conversation and you ask questions is because if I don't know your timeline as a client, and if I follow up on my proposal, it feels a little bit pushy, right? It's like, hey, make a decision now. Pay me. You have to like create this false urgency. Whereas if in the conversation you had initially, you say, when do you want that done? And they say, October. And you say, okay, well, it's August 1st right now. For us to get this done by October, we need to get started by August 20th. Now, when you send that proposal, you can follow up and say, hey, I know you wanted to have this done by October. For us to hit that timeline, we need to get started by August 20th. So please let me know what you're thinking on this. And it's, now, it's no longer pushy. There's no longer false urgency. You're using their mm. information they gave you about their timeline. And it's showing that you have their interest at heart. You are listening to them. And you know your stuff so well that you know the time period you need to get started on to actually get to that result. You know? So are you putting, are you with every single 
sales conversation you have, or really it's like a discovery call, or we can talk about the actual format of you talking to clients in a second, whether it's email or phone or some other thing, but with every single client, are you looking for that timeline? Are you trying to get a timeline out of them just to have, cause this does something that I think a lot of people struggle with as freelancers. And that is introducing scarcity to the equation. Scarcity is one of the most powerful psychological elements when it comes to sales, because something's disappearing potentially. And it's really hard to do in the service world. Cause you can't just say like, by now or I'm gone forever. Like a, that's lying. B that's a little scummy sounding and C like there's no way you can argue that realistically. So going by their timeline is actually putting scarcity into their court. And it's something that they gave you. So I, I love the fact that you're using scarcity in this kind of clever way to keep pushing the project forward and, and having an excuse to follow up. Totally. Scarcity is really powerful and scarcity has a powerful cousin called urgency. When you manufacture it, it's just gross and a bad experience. But when there's real reason for it, like these deadlines, there's a reason to have urgency because people won't make a decision until they have to. We have infinite decision in anything that we do today, anything in the world, and we're afraid of making the wrong decision. So what we'll do is just not make one at all. I'm so guilty of this. I am eerily, (laughs) it sounds super accurate to me. My observation as your friend is that y- that is absolutely true. <laughs> yes. yes. I've, so, seen, I've asked you questions before when you've been stressed and, and seen your eyes go glassy. I was going to get past that. Yeah. It's, it's really asking these questions. Like at a, at a high level, the experience the client wants to have is they want to have this conversation and then want to leave that conversation feeling confident that I can just throw money at this person and my problem goes away and it's like magic. So the more that you can do as a freelancer to make that entire experience magic and make the input required by the client so low, the better off you'll be. And that starts with questions like you need data to make your own decisions and to do your work, right? So all of my client conversations, I don't start with like, well, let me tell you a little bit about me first. It's very much like you, 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 you. I'm going to ask you questions about you and your priorities and your business until you ask me proactively to talk about my stuff. But in the process of me asking you questions, I'm going to be friendly. I'm going to have some presumed rapport so we get along pretty well. And I'm going to be asking smart questions that allow me to lead the conversation. You know, any conversation you have with a potential client, there was already something that happened that spurred that conversation, right? You have some level of context that they're looking for something. And you can really just start the conversation by replaying that context to be like, okay, so We got introduced by Brian. Uh, He said you had some audio needs. So just tell me a little bit about your business and what brought you to this conversation today and let them give you all the context they can. And if they stop before you have all the information you want, you just want them to keep going. You can say, tell me more about that or say more, you know, and they'll just keep going. At some point when you feel like you understand what they're trying to get and the answer is probably higher revenue or lower cost or a finished project in your guys's world by a deadline. Once you know what they're trying to get, you say, okay, let me see if I have this straight. It sounds like you're trying to get X and your constraints are Y and Z. Does that sound right? And they'll say yes. Or they'll say, well, actually and you say, okay. And you repeat back when you have the answers. So they have confidence that you're hearing their problem and that you understand their problem. And then you say, okay, I'm very confident that I can help you. If you are confident, you can help them. If you're not confident, say, This doesn't sound like me, actually, but I do know someone great that I'll refer you to. But if you're sitting there saying, I can do this project, you need to say, okay, I'm very confident that I can help you with this because that just affirms for them. It puts them at ease that, okay, if this person's confident, now I can be confident in them. Then you ask your questions about timeline. 
So say, okay, so you want this. These are your constraints. What kind of timeline are we talking about here? When do you want to have this done? And they'll give you an answer. And you can say, okay, if you want to have it done by that time, we need to get started by this time. And that's where you can create your urgency if you need to follow up and get them to move later. But I really like to hash out just about all the details about a project in that first call. So you are doing this all over the call, like on a call. Because here's totally in our world, in the audio world, I, I, can, I can't tell you how many, how long it took me to understand that, no, you don't close all clients through email. That's the stupidest, least effective way. Like I did that so for so long and it, it, it can work. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I never, I, mean, I, I closed clients doing that, but I didn't realize how, how much more effective a one-on-one conversation on the phone or through Zoom can be. Yeah, that was absolutely my education and every business I've ever run that I was actually explaining this earlier today to Kyle, my manager, about how when I first built my mastering business, it grew really, really fast as I figured out marketing systems and then slowed down until I figured out service systems. And then what would happen is like it would, you know, it would make a lot of money and I'd get really, really busy and I'd stop calling potential customers. And then the revenues would go down. And then I'd remember, oh yeah, that's the one thing that works really, really well. So I'd start making phone calls again. Sales would skyrocket. And it was weird. I, like, I found myself continually forgetting how effective that was and that it was the number one driver of growth. And I don't know, man, I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. Yeah, totally. I mean, sales is not unlike dating. I love going back to dating analogies all the time on this podcast. So go there, please, Jay. I mean... You might strike up a conversation. You might have a good feeling about this person, but you're not going to be interested in a relationship with this person until you at least talk on the phone, if not like have a face-to-face interaction with this person because there's just always going to be doubts. There's going to be stuff like, well, it's so easy to lose something in translation in written form that you can read into too deeply, whereas we're social creatures. Like even if I say something incorrectly or my grammar is off, you can intuit my intentions, my vibe, how well we'll get along. I try to close everything on the phone uh, or in person or on a video call, something real time. So it's funny you say that. My, my wife and I, we had a rule since we started dating, which was like 2015, that any serious conversation, we do not have it over text. Anything serious. The mm-hmm. reason being exactly what you just said right there. You can take, you can project tones and meanings into words on a screen that are not actually there. And I can't tell you how many friends of mine have had relationships blow up because of that very reason. And so I love that you brought this back to dating because the same thing can happen in the client world. You can send a text or an email and it comes off very aggressive when you didn't mean it to be that way. That's just how you type and you lose the project. So I love getting on the phone because tonality, body language, all of these things can really help the person interpret your meaning, your vibe, what you stand for, how you are. And they may learn that they, they really like you, even though you're awful at texting, you have typos everywhere and, and so on and so forth. So I, I love, there's no reason not to get on the phone. Well, on a couple of thoughts with that, Brian, you know, we've talked about the book Influence uh, in the past. Are you familiar with? Uh, oh yeah. Of course you are. <laughs> I, I almost didn't ask it. I was like, your vibe I was like, of course he's read that book. Like, yeah. of course. I've read like 10 books. That's one of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Influence, they talk about liking and how powerful that is in regards to influence, which yeah. is, you know, it's sales. And it's interesting. It's really hard to get someone to like you over email or text. You can communicate with them. But one of the things that I'm learning right now, I'm not going to go super deep into this, but we talk about mental health an awful lot on this podcast. And as I've been on my own journey and in therapy, I've learned that there are certain words that have a connotation to me 
because of my past that don't have a connotation to other mm-hmm. people. And what's been fascinating about that in regards to just human communication, which sales is, not all communication is sales, but all sales is communication. Oh, that was kind of nice, <laughs> but irrelevant. We, we, we got a square <laughs> rectangle situation here. Yeah, very <laughs> tweetable, man. Very, very tweetable. T- very tweetable. But what I've been learning that's been so interesting is like I used to get in arguments with a lot of people in my family, a lot. And I, what I would always do is, is I would well, say, you said, and I'd paraphrase what they said, but it wasn't what they said. It was what I perceived that they said. What I've learned that's been so interesting about language is that when you have a feeling, your computer inside your brain translates that to words with a certain degree of accuracy, not 100% accuracy. I would guess like four times in human history has any human effectively communicated 100% of how they felt using words alone. You have a feeling, a thing you want to communicate. You translate that to words with a certain degree of accuracy. They hear what you said to a certain degree of accuracy, and then they translate it back into feelings with an even less degree of accuracy. It's the emotional telephone game, basically, like you played in, in kindergarten. Yeah, it's the emotional telephone game. And that makes relationships and communication really hard when there's not a shared vocabulary or worse, when there seems to be a shared vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I used to run into that all the time with clients where they would say one thing and they'd use like an industry buzzword, but they meant something totally different. Mm. They'd be yep. like, yeah, it feels like the master's clipping uh, was like a nerd thing that our audience will vibe with. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. none of my masters have ever clipped. That's, that's preposterous. <laughs> and what they meant was there was some distortion in their mix that the master brought out a little bit more that they didn't love. It's so weird when, when you're having these conversations with people, trying to make sure that you are saying what you actually mean and they are hearing what you actually mean. And that's really hard because only, the only feedback loop is more words. Yeah. Before we get into the podcast today, let me tell you a little something crazy about myself. I'm actually a psychic, and I'm going to prove it to you. You and I, we've probably never met, but I bet I can describe your business better than you can. Here's what my crystal ball says. You probably have no idea how to get clients other than waiting around for referrals and word of mouth. You're stuck in a perpetual cycle of feast or famine, so you have wild income swings from month to month. You're charging way less than you should, and you know it, but you don't do anything about it. You feel like you have a million things you could be doing in your business, and you have no idea what you should be focusing on, and you have tons of little half-built bridges leading to nowhere because you've jumped from thing to thing to thing as a dabbler. Am I right? Does this sound eerily similar to you? That's because I've been in your shoes, and I've worked with thousands of freelancers who've also been there. So I'm not a psychic. My crystal ball is not real. I just have a really clear understanding of what freelancers are facing today. And if I can predict your problems, you can bet I actually have a solution to these problems. It's called client acquisition. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but for some reason, freelancers still haven't really figured this out yet. This is why I created Clients by Design Coaching. It's a truly unique coaching program that helps you build your own client acquisition machine so you can break out of this feast or famine cycle that most freelancers never escape. So here's how our approach is unique. First, we do a deep dive on your business, we figure out what's missing, and we give you a complete marketing roadmap right from the start. So no more dabbling, no more guesswork, just a clear path to getting more clients. You always know what your next step is because we actually assign specific tasks to you. So instead of feeling overwhelmed, instead of feeling scattered, you can just focus on your next step. That's it. We give you unlimited feedback on everything you do so you can feel confident that every single step you're taking is the right one. And we hold you accountable. 
not by nagging you, but just by genuinely supporting and cheering you on every step of the way. If you're behind on any steps we've assigned to you, we'll proactively reach out and see how we can help. Clients by Design is not a course. We look at it like a partnership. We'll always show up. We'll always give you what you need, but you have to be willing to put in the work. This program is not for everyone, and that is okay. As of right now, I just checked the numbers. We've only approved about 25% of the applicants we've gotten so far, and that's because we are selective. We only accept your application if we believe we can truly help you. So if you're ready to end your feast or famine cycle and build a client acquisition machine, you can apply for Clients by Design by going to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. That's the number six, figurecreative.com slash coach. Now here's our show. Well, if anybody listening to this feels afraid of taking the leap to doing real-time communication, one, I would ask you to try to power through it because you're only going to get better with practice. You shouldn't expect that you're good at it if you haven't done it a bunch yeah. of times. But two, let's say you're in a situation where the client doesn't have time or isn't willing to go to a uh, real-time conversation yet. Use uh, loom.com, free video recording software. This Literally guy. just force a real-time conversation, a half of one, where you explain your proposal. I love this when people send me proposals that are written, but then they say, and here's me walking through it. And instead of reading the document, I just put the video on one and a half speed and listen to them talk through it. And it's just way more clear. It's way more high fidelity. It's way more personal. It's way more compelling. And you can re-record that as many times as you want until you feel confident in it. Let me ask you a question. You brought up Loom and you are our people because we're obsessed with Loom. Have you tried the new recording feature in Descript? And have you used I, Descript? I've used Descript, but I built my system uh, around not Descript. So to go back and change the system to use Descript and the pricing model doesn't, it's not going to save me money. And I'm not sure it's going to even save me time with the way I've built my system. So it sounds like Jay's a smart guy who realizes that there's a time cost associated to switching something like that. And it's not worth it to, to mess with your systems in something that's already working, Chris. Very often that's true. I, I have done exactly what you're talking about as far as using videos in an email for sales. One of the things that's so cool about Loom that I prefer over Dropbox for this feature is that when you record a short video, so I've got nice camera, nice mic, and I'll pull Loom up. And if I have a message that I want to make sure feels personal, somebody i'll record a one minute video and send it to them and then this is a little creepy but when they watch it you get a notification it's great it's so it's great yeah it's so yeah, useful it's awesome yeah because okay they did watch it and they're thinking about me right now so i'm gonna respond to them yep yeah or send them one more message or something like that yep what i like about descript for this feature which for some people might be an easier tool these are both tools where you can record yourself pretty easily or record your screen pretty easily with descript it does the same thing loom does but then once you're done, you have a text document of the video you just recorded and anything you edit in that text document edits the mm. video itself. So like sometimes I'm, I do some activism and I'm reaching out to different politicians to change a couple different laws in Ohio that I'm passionate about. And with people like that, I get nervous and I want to make a pitch a couple times and make sure I nail it. And with Descript to be like, okay, cool, cool, cool. I will take one. That was pretty good. And then middle of take three and then the end of take four. Cool. Awesome. This sounds amazing. Wow. And I pushed a button and all of the filler words like, you know, deleted. Let's pause this conversation and just say like, we're not going to bog people down by specific tools more than just the general principle of talking to your customer. That's, that's the whole point of this conversation here is staying away from text when you, when you can. And if you have, if you have to send an email, 
Let's try something like Loom or Descript or whatever tool is out there. If you have if you have a tool that can take video, use that. It doesn't really matter that much. You can get to the weeds of it later on when you get more experience with this stuff. There's a, let me add one more tool to this. Let's move on from tools. Okay, cool. But let me add one more tool to this. That's classic Chris Graham. Go ahead. I was going to use an example. I'll, I'll humor you. Yeah. But my my friend Ben, who Ben Hartley, who we've had on the podcast in the past, he uses the video chat feature in Instagram a lot. So he loves to send videos that way. I've used Marco Polo for that feature. To, if there's a long conversation, that can be really, really nice as well. But yeah, there are so, just so many tools that can tweak it enough where it doesn't, the real-time aspect of, of having a conversation is tricky. And these tools allow you to, to, to remove that from the equation. We've all lost projects to somebody. And for whatever the reason, the person that won that project stood out. And what we're talking about is just a bunch of ways that you can stand out. Let's elaborate on that a little bit. You, you mentioned something earlier that I want to touch on. The whole point of sales, it doesn't have to be like this, this dirty thing that like you have all this crazy strategy and this like script you go by and like all these things that people try to project that sales is. It really isn't, especially in the, in the freelance world where we're just trying to help people with solutions. We're trying to say that like, first of all, I want to figure out if I can help you at all. And then if I figure out that I can help you, I'll let you know what it looks like to work with me. We're going to find a timeline that works for you. And then I'll let you know pricing around that. And then I can follow up from there. That's kind of like your flow. You're trying to do this over phone. But you mentioned something about like how a lot of business owners, which is a lot of freelancers are working direct with business owners. I know our, our past audience, a lot of them are working with bands, which are kind of miniature businesses. Some are more serious than others. But I like the Some idea more that miniature you brought, than others too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, brought, I like the idea that you brought up where the, the business owner, just the problem solved as simple as possible with as few hoops for them to jump through as possible. And I resonate with this as a business owner who hires freelancers regularly, because I know with, I have multiple businesses and with those businesses, I work with freelancers and I can't tell you how many times, how I, I can't even express how low the bar truly is. I'm not pinching pennies. I'm not like looking for the lowest bidder of the project. I'm looking for someone who can just do the damn job. And it's so hard to just find that. And if, if the person can even do the job, even for finding someone that can communicate that they can do the job with confidence, like these are things that I struggle with as someone hiring freelancers. So I think that's a huge part of the sales process is just being able to communicate your value to someone in a confident way. One of the things too, that I think is important to point out, I, I love this perspective that you're bringing in about when you hire freelancers. And I want, I want to dig into that a little bit more. When I'm looking to hire a freelancer, the price is usually not the most expensive thing that I'm risking. Hiring someone yep. and it going south and then having to hire somebody else and losing time, that's worst case scenario. Yep. I will pay significantly more just to remove that risk. And so when you're, when you're competing on price, sometimes you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot on how dependable you appear to be. How sure is your client that it's going to be, hey, we showed up, he got us through the whole process, he was a total pro, absolutely no hiccups, it was fast, and his price wasn't too bad either. That's yeah. so much more important and your business will grow so much more by than like, he was real cheap. I can probably count on one hand the number of early stage or like even potential freelancers that I've talked to who didn't have enough skill to make a living freelancing, mm. you know, because it's not... It's not about the raw skill. If you're even drawn to this, chances are you already have enough skill in some area that you can get paid well yep. doing it. It's more about the soft skills. It's about being able to sell, about marketing yourself and being that pro that people can just plug in because it is usually about time. You, the people you're hiring, you can do that work yourself. 
they don't need to be better than you at that or even as good as you at that. They need to get the job done to the degree that you would be happy with. And it needs to take the time off of your plate and give it back to you. And that's what most clients want. They just want to be able to put money towards something so they can reclaim their time and have confidence that that money is going to get the outcome they want and give them back as much time as possible. So if you show up and you're somebody that they trust, understands their problem, can deliver the solution and on time and match the communication style they want, you know, I don't want to say that you need to be hyper communicative. Sometimes you do. Some clients don't want that. They actually want to be really hands off. It's about figuring out what they want, what communication style they have so that you can match it in a way that serves them. And again, it just comes down to, can you make this entire experience feel like magic? Because if you can, that person's going to refer more people. They're going to keep hiring you as often as possible. They may like actively stop referring people and try to pay for all of your time because you're so good at what you do, which is an interesting challenge because that's not best business sense for you to have one client on retainer, but it's a good signal that what you're doing is good enough that you can get paid really well for it. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've always been, been really interested in freelancers that have a very small number of clients. And you hit the nail on the head there. Like there's an interesting topic there because if you have a bunch of clients and that was really my business model. Now, as I get to know myself better through all this mental health exploration, I look back like, oh yeah, I was low price, high volume. So I had a ton of customers so that none of them had control of me. No customer represented like even close to 1% of my revenue. Classic Enneagram 8 move right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was a psychological, I did that because of my, my issues. It wasn't a, a super great business decision, but it was for what I wanted. I was able to get exactly what I wanted. Just what I wanted wasn't, it was pretty stupid. Yeah. I mean, I joked with you, I've joked with you many times to say like, if you'd taken all of those skills and time you put into the mastering business and put it into any other business, you'd be a multimillionaire right now. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. But so it's interesting. So one of my friends, his name is Brandon Reich, do another podcast with him. He's been on the show in the past. And Brandon's this amazing guy. He was one of the most successful freelance band merch designers in the world. And then he got, he created a new job called creative director who oversees all branding during an album cycle for a band. And now he's like 21 Pilots is creative director and a whole bunch of other bands. Just, he's incredible. And I was always fascinated with, with his business because we would hang out and talk about our businesses all the time. And he was like, I have five customers. I have five companies that hire me. And then the clients are actually, they belong to these agencies. And it was always interesting to me to be like, wow, you're really making a lot of money. You're getting paid really well. But it's so scary to me to be like, if one of those companies starts to get a little bit in your face, you, you got to jump. Like you have to respond to them or you can lose 20% of your revenue overnight. Yeah. And that may not be a bad, that, that's not terrible, you know? Mm. So to yeah. me, I'm also one of those people where I wanted to work with actually as few of people as possible so that I knew that I was comfortable and I had some level of psychological safety, but actually gave me enough time to pursue my own creative projects. Yeah. The more clients you have, the higher your switching costs, just the more like things you have to tend to. I have a friend of mine who says, you can have as many cats as you want, but you have to feed all of them. <laughs> That's a, any mastering engineer listening to our podcast right now is just groaning right now because they, they, that hit them so hard. <laughs> I wanted to feed as few cats as possible. But the thing that, that I did to that. protect myself was... It reminds me, I need to feed my cat. She was almost <laughs> out of food when I left today. <laughs> Thanks for interrupting our guest for that line. <laughs> it's my job. Bert and Ernie. 
I loved recurring contracts, retainers and things. And I would have at least 30 days notice to cancel the contract. I would prefer 60 days, but that's a little intense. Those are tough terms to get all the time. But the thing is like the more confident you become, not even just your ability to deliver work, but to sell it. To me, like real job security is just feeling secure in the fact that when I need to bring money in the door, I can do it. And it got to the point for me that like that was never a question. And if it got to a really bad situation where I had to go get a part-time or even full-time job, I also felt confident I could do that. Mm. So I would rather err on the side of building my business the way that I wanted to build it, which was saving a lot of time for my creative projects. And even if that was risky to have fewer clients at a time, it allowed me to be better for each of those clients. It allowed me to care more about each of those projects. And I just had fewer cats to feed. Man, I'm right in that spot right now. So when I started doing business coaching, when the podcast took off, I worked with a lot of people and it was really, really fun. But as I've been, you know, sort of processing life and all the changes that are going on, I've been been niching down to be like, well, systems is the thing that I'm really, really good at. And systems is what I want to want to coach people on. Productivity. Productivity. Productivity is what I want to coach people on. Product. I, I'm trying to find a Sorry. way to say I'm coaching, systems. I'm coaching Chris here for a second. Systems is not very interesting. I don't know how to, how to make systems sexy. I had an idea earlier. Maybe I'll call my course like, you know, system nator from. Oh, uh, go away. <laughs> no. I'm a big fan of anators from <laughs> Perry the Platypus. But anyways, I'm in a place right now where I'm starting to focus on going much more in depth with people that I'm coaching, helping them build a God system for their business. And that has been really, really fun to just be like, okay, well, I've got my my squad here and I'm just going to love them really well and focus on them and think about them and, and well, text I think, them. I think this is worth exploring just a little bit. And then I want to actually talk about proposals as well, just to kind of see the next thing that I, I think is worth discussing. But th- this brings up the topic of finding the audience that is going to get the most value from what it is that you offer. If you can find the audience that finds more value in what you, you create, like what you do as a, as a creator, if you find that audience, you can charge more and you can give more time to that person to keep them happier. But the, the world you were stuck in, Chris, for so long is you were working with unsigned artists at scale for the most part, a lot of unsigned artists most at scale. Time, I'm not yeah. trying to insult any of your clients. I'm just no, letting you know, fine. like you weren't working with the people who could have made the most of the work that you were doing or the skill set that you had. Therefore, you were in this nickel and dime land instead of the, the world that you're kind of in now where you've really cultivated this very valuable skill set and you're starting to find the place that that lives in the most valuable place. And that allows you to charge more per client. It allows you to scale your business to a higher level without having to juggle hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients. And I think, Jay, that's what you did as well. Oh yeah, I mean, listen, it's easier to sell to people who have money. And also, sometimes it's easier to work with people who don't need your help all that much. Like when you put yourself in a situation where you're working with people who can't afford you, and it also feels like so high stakes, so desperate. It can be really intense and really hard, not even just financially, but like emotionally yeah. and psychologically. And you don't always have to fight uphill. Like it's okay sometimes to find clients that have deep pockets that like you, you build a good relationship and it's a good, steady, reliable paycheck or retainer or you know gig whenever it comes in. And the thing about any client is more begets more. So if you work with these nickel and dime clients, the people that they're talking with, the people that they're going to refer to you, mm. same type of client. If you go upstream and you work with somebody that has a bigger budget that works with the signed artists, 
they probably represent more of those people or they at least have another you know friend who works in another label who represents the same type of client so like you got to pick what pond you want to swim in and i just got to a point where it's like for for my mastermind program specifically that was a point where the price point that those clients could afford just no longer aligned with how i valued my time and it just didn't make sense anymore so i started doing more corporate gigs because it was more lucrative it fed what i was trying to do which was save more time for my own projects and i think at some point you got to ask yourself like why am i doing this business and is the execution of it aligned with you know my goals if the system here we go every system is perfectly designed to achieve the results that it achieves if you don't like the results that you're achieving you need to change the system you need to change the input and you got to do that process like pretty regularly if you start feeling yourself getting like even depressed or like questioning things or lost, like think about, is this doing for me what I wanted it to do? And if not, maybe it's time, time to change the, the system. Yeah. Or to build a system. I think for a lot of people, when, when they're early on in their freelancer career, it's literally just like, you know, those, those booths at the fair where there's just like money flying around in a wind tunnel and you're just trying to grab it. Like that's, I think the first year of freelancing for a lot of people, yeah. instead of figuring out like, here's a system, all the money, you can just trap it in the corner. So just like push it all up there and do the same thing again and again. Don't just like reach all over the place, trying to grab any money that you can, high, low, left, for, left, forward, right, back. You know, finding a system is really hard to do until you niche down to one specific service. And I think when you're doing that first year of freelancing and you're just trying anything that you can you're saying yes to every project which i think you should you have to figure out where your superpowers are but then eventually having the discipline to say eh, i'm going to focus on this one thing so that i can build a system around it where it just does you know day in and day out things operate in the same way it's not like one project i got paid in advance another project i got paid 90 days later another project was 50 percent down having one way of doing business allows you to become really good at doing business. And then when there's a problem, you can address that in the system. You can tweak that and say, oh man, case in point, there were some genres of music when I was mastering, was like my only gig. There were some genres of music that were much less profitable than Mm -hmm. other genres of music. And I had this before and after player on my website. So you'd choose the style of music you wanted and then you could listen to it before I mastered it and after I mastered it. And it was cool. People love playing with it. And we'll probably edit this out because I've explained this 17 million times on the, on the podcast. Every episode. Every but, episode. So people would come on there. They'd choose the genre that they wanted. And then they would ask me for a free sample using like a call to action on the website. And what I started to experiment with was, okay, I'm running a lot of ads on this particular master and website. I'm going to change the genres of music to reflect the genres of music that I would like to work with more Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that are more profitable. Mm -hmm. And just something like that of removing a genre that was, you know, I I remember I did the research and I I used to measure what people had listened to on the website. This is way back when you were allowed to gather data like this. And so I would look at like what genres they listened to and I was able to calculate how they interact with my website was an indicator of how valuable as a customer they were. Mm. And then I started mm-hmm. to recognize, okay, well, if they go to this, I'm not interested in them. So I'll change the website to focus it on serving my ideal customer. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you can extrapolate this all the way up and think about your entire business as a system. And like, if the clients you're getting aren't the clients that you want, the system that is your entire operation of that business is not 
serving you the way you want. So like, yeah. okay, Ooh. how how do I change this? And for you, it was changing like, okay, I actually just want to reflect the messaging and the way I give you the experience of experiencing my website to be for the people that I want to work with. You, you put a filter in place, change the system. For me, I realized like sales, instead of trying to double or triple the number of potential sales conversations I had, I just wanted to get more effective at each and every one of those conversations. Like I can either get twice as effective at closing deals or I can have twice as many conversations. I picked the one that was twice as effective. That's the route I wanted to go. I wanted to just close more deals. And so the process was getting better at filtering. So the conversations I had were more qualified. And then it's these things like, okay, I realize that if I have a real-time conversation, it works. I understand if I start with questions, it works. Even got to the point where I had like the perfect email to send to set up the conversation because I realized the point of the email, the win of the email was not a project. The win of the email was having a conversation because I only sent the emails to the people that I had qualified as a good target. And I would give them very brief context and say, if this is interesting to you at all, I would love to get on a call, zero pressure, zero obligation, but let's just talk about it. And if that email could convert them to a phone call, I knew phone calls converted well to projects. So, you know, you just change the system to get a better result that you're looking for. Sometimes it might be working with a different kind of client because referrals are where you're getting most of your client deals. And if the people you're being referred aren't the type of client you want to work with, you need to think about, okay, well, why are they referring this type of person? Maybe I need to be working with somebody else so that their pool of referrals is different. Yeah. So we talk about how you're average of the five people you surround yourself with the most. Therefore, if you work with somebody you don't like, the people they surround themselves with, you're probably also not going to like as well. So why work with people you don't like at all? So I think one of the things that's interesting about that, I love what you just said there, Brian, that you're an average of the five people you hang out with the most. I think you could also extrapolate that to say that your future customers are an average of your present customers. Totally. You're going to get more of the same. You know, if you gave someone a sweetheart deal and you said, you know what, I usually charge $500 for this, but for you, I'm going to give you a $200 price. You think they're telling their best friend that they paid you $500? They're not. They're going to tell the price that you gave. And that's going to be awkward when you talk to them mm-hmm. and you're now pitching the same project. They want the price their friend got. It works in the inverse too. Whereas if you're just charging what you think you're worth and what you uh, would be happy with getting from a project, that's the price they're going to tell to the person they're referring because we often talk about the price we paid if we're referring somebody. Where you yep. say, oh, I worked with this person. Oh, how much did that cost? Cost this much? Great. So if you're discounting yourself, that's going to get passed along infinitely. Yeah, and I... I can, as, as someone who has both hired freelancers and has been hired as a freelancer, I can tell you that it is, it is, you never, you just never want to discount yourself if you can. And, and I think the, I think the core reason that people discount themselves like that, like giving a $200 deal to the $500 instead of the $500 is because you are afraid of rejection. And I think you can probably speak to this, but I'm just telling from my experience, you will be, and you probably should be rejected the majority of the time. Totally. <laughs> or else you're not charging enough. Yep. Totally agree. If you're not being rejected, then you're being taken advantage of. <laughs> I wonder if the same applies to dating. <laughs> Let me think about that. I don't that, think actually. it does, Chris. I don't think it does. <laughs> I don't think that's dating. But okay. I don't know. I, I think that, well, I mean, statistically speaking, almost nobody that you meet is going to be a romantic interest. And literally nobody except for one person will be your partner. Oh, if you're talking about. You're talking about rejection, yes. I thought you thought you were talking about discounting your services. That's where my brain was. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No. Well, I'm not, I'm not experienced in the dating front. I've only been on dates with like three people in my life. Like, you got married young, Chris. So I did get not, married young. Yeah. yeah, I got married at like 
I want to say close to 30, 29 maybe. So I, I had a few more dates in my life, but it, it, yeah, you have to be rejected a lot to, or be willing to be rejected at least in order to, to get dates. So let's actually talk about the final piece of this puzzle that I wanted, been wanting to talk about. And that is proposals. This is something that's, that's honestly not that common in the audio world or the music world and the music production world specifically, but something that I've been trying to bring to our world is sending proposals to your clients. But I've, I've actually kind of gone away from that because I've, I've been talking to people about trying to close on the call if you can, to get a deposit instead of being too scared to talk about pricing on the call and saying, I'll just send a proposal after this call and we'll go through the details. What do you recommend, Jay? Do you send a proposal every time? Do you recommend sending a proposal or trying to collect a deposit on the phone and close them on the phone? I don't collect payment on the phone. I think you, if you can, that's awesome. That means you have like really good project solution fit. But I like to give people some space. What I do collect on the phone is commitment. And uh, I give them the details for them to make a decision to tell me like, yeah, I think I'm going to move forward with this because that's, that's a consistency bias thing. Mm. If I tell you on the phone that I'm interested now and move forward and I have all the necessary relevant inputs to make that decision, pricing being a very important one. If I say on the phone that I'm going to do it, like I can send you a payment link later and you're, you'll probably do it. I'm terrified of this. I, this is funny, Brian, because there's a lot of areas of sales that don't scare me at all. But asking for a commitment on the phone terrifies me. And it's funny, like I, I was talking to somebody yesterday who ended up making a commitment on the phone and I was perfectly transparent about this. I was like, I, people, they tell me I'm supposed to close on the phone. I don't know about that. So I'm going to sales pitch you here. Like I, I just like bumbled into it and because I was like, I feel awkward. I don't know how to do this. It worked because it was a great fit. It was a perfect coaching package for this guy. Here's, here's the thing that I think is, is worth at least pushing a little bit for a commitment. Like you said, Jay, if not a deposit, if it's possible is that until you push for some sort of commitment or a deposit or a payment, I don't think you're going to get to the true objections as to why they're, they don't want to hire you. And, and I think just for anything, if for any other reason than just for experimentation and learning is is pushing for it and, and being willing to push for it a little bit. Not like the sleazy, like, well, if you don't buy now, we're going to, you're never going to get this offer again. Like none of that crap. But like, just even, even what Jay is saying, just pushing for commitment to say that a verbal yes, I'm in is a, is a really good way because if they're not willing to commit verbally, they're definitely not going to commit monetarily. And until money's exchanged, I don't think they're really that committed. So that's when you start getting to the real objections of why they don't want to hire you or why they think they can't hire you. I think where a lot of people fall short here is they don't think ahead of time about what they want to have happen with that call. And then they don't trust their word vomit to mm. give the right answer. They think it's going to back them into a corner. So every conversation that I have beforehand, I have an outcome that I think we're going to get to and that I want to get to. And I can revise that on the fly if, I, if their needs are different than I expected. But I go into every call that's a sales call with at least a proposed format and objective that I've gathered from some conversation or past projects that I can point to and say, here's what I've done in the past. But my goal on that phone is to make it so clear and so obvious that I am a great answer to this problem that at the end, I can just sit in a lot of silence most of the time. And I've answered all the questions. I've told them, if you want to get this done by this date, we have to start by this time. Here's a price. What do you think? And let them speak. They'll bring up that objective like you're t or objection like you're talking about, Brian, and I'll answer that. And I'll, it'll usually be pretty straightforward because if I believe it's a good fit and I've already spoken to why it's a good fit and how I can help them, it's almost like 
it wouldn't make sense for us to leave that call and not continue this conversation and continue working together unless I named my price and they said, ah, that's kind of high or can you do this? In which case we can negotiate and have more of a conversation. But most of the time I, I stick to my guns on this because again, it comes back to a confidence thing where I'm confident that I can find another person who will pay that price. And I'm comfortable enough that like, I don't need this. It's really hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's a vicious cycle to get out of. Like if you truly, truly need this project to land for you to pay your bills, it's hard to enter with the confidence and certainty that you need. Like the client senses it. And even if they don't know that it's just like a money insecurity thing and not a confidence that you can do the problem thing, they sense something's off and it creates this doubt and it creates some friction. You, you really need to be confident when you're delivering the price and your ability to, to fulfill it. But yeah, by the time I get off the phone, we've already sketched out the details of what's going to happen. I send them a very light proposal as a formality, just putting into writing exactly what I said. It has a deposit link and we go from there. I love that, man. I've been, this is exactly where I've been as, as far as my own growth and my businesses right now is trying to think more about, to, to ask myself questions about if there are things I could be doing better in sales. And I think that that's an important place for all of us to get everyone listening to this podcast, just to pause and, and think, could I improve at this? Is there room for me to be more effective? And what would it look like if I was more effective? What would the, what would the impact be of me having a couple, couple take-homes from this conversation here, me having a clear objective of what I want to do? And then, Brian, I love what you said about, I want to present that on the phone because I want to hear objections so that I can address those with the next customer ahead of time mm -hmm. yep. or change my offering. Or change your messaging on your website to address those objections before they even get on the call or an email that you send before they even get on the call. It allows you to crush objections, essentially. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it from the standpoint. You started, to, I'd never heard you talk about how intense you were for pro closing on the phone until we hung out in Nashville a couple of weeks ago. And it's come up a couple of times since then. So I've been thinking a lot about it. But yeah, you're right. They're, they're, to, to approach it from an object, I want to be an objection crusher. That's really interesting. That the, the purpose of the sale, the purpose of the sales process you want to get the sales, but the real purpose of the sales process most of the time is to improve your sales process. You also need to be aware going to that conversation. If this is the person who can say yes and make the payment. Oh, so it's a decision maker. Yes. Yeah. This person has to be the decision maker. If they're not the decision maker, your goal on that call is selling them to becoming an advocate for you being the solution. And the follow-up's a little bit different. You ask them questions like once you once you've got them bought in that you're their person and they want to present you as the solution, then you need to talk to them differently and be like, how do I make you look awesome in your role? How do I make this really easy for you to explain to your boss? And they'll just give you the playbook and they'll tell you exactly what you need to say and how you need to send it. If you need to put in a proposal, what form? Or in our case, you're working with a lot of people are working with a lot of musicians and artists and bands. So bands are five members a lot of times, four to five members. And if you're only talking to one of those members you'd be rest assured you need to convince the rest of those members that you're the right solution as well. So getting that band member that you talk to on the phone as the advocate for you as the producer or even doing music videos, videographers, this is something that you have to deal with. So I'm glad you brought that up, Jay. Yeah. Again, another reason why if you send a proposal, do a loom overview or a descript overview walking through it because then that person gets a good sense of who you are. Some people are just, you know, they... They want to say no to everything. They're looking for a reason to say no. And it's a lot harder to say no when they're seeing you 
in real time as a person, even if it's pre-recorded. I'm going to, I'm going to convert this to action. I love what you're saying. And even the idea of doing a follow-up via Loom, I've yeah. never, well, yep. I've done follow-ups pre-sale. I've never done it to close before. Yeah. It's always been like, well, I'm just building a relationship. I'm just touching base with And them. if you do it, like, again, reiterate, like, hey, I had such a great time talking with you. I think we can do some incredible things with this project. Uh, I'm totally confident we can get it done by this date. Here's some information you need to know. If you want to take the next step, here's what the next step is. I need it by this time. If you have any questions at all, let me know, and I'd be happy to talk more about it or get on the phone again. But thanks again for taking the time and I'm really looking forward to this. Love it. Are you willing to share what your what your typical close rate is, like your closing percentage on a sales call? Like, do you know how many, what percentage of people? It's, it's probably like in the 70 or 80%. Um, again, I worked with very few clients at a time. So when I signed a client, it was usually like a multi-month commitment. It's like a miniature marriage. Yeah, totally. <laughs> what is that? I don't, I don't think know, that's a not- thing. <laughs> totally. I mean- I hate rejection as much as the next person. So I would even say that I've probably underpriced myself in the past if I'm hitting that high of a close rate. But for me, like I was looking for client fit too. And the client fit for me was like, am I going to get along with this person? Do they match my communication style? Which is I want to be proactive and telling you what's going on. I don't want you bugging me all the time. Well, that's kind of our philosophy here at Six Figure Creative. We're not just after making money. We're trying to pursue our creative passions that we can also monetize. And part of that isn't just maximizing every single dollar we can possibly make. A lot of times we're just trying to find the right client. Like you said, the right client for our lifestyle, for our creative needs and for our our businesses. It's not the person who's always paying the most. Sometimes it's the person who may not have the highest budget, but they're just a delight to work with. And we have to take that into account with with our sales process. When the client is right and you're confident that you can do the work, you can be very frank in these phone calls and it gets you off on a good foot. And you can just be like, listen, here's the price. I don't like to negotiate. This is not me trying to anchor you to a price so we get somewhere in the middle. Like this is what I charge for this. And just, you know, you go from there and they respect that honesty, but I'm sure I've underpriced myself at times. But the thing is like, what is pricing? Pricing is marketing. Every time anybody pays anything for anything, It's because they told themselves a story. So if you do sales well, you're understanding the levers in their mind that help them tell a story to themselves why this is worth the price. And it can be whatever it is, as long as they can tell themselves a story that this is worth it. So when I say I've underpriced myself, I don't mean like in an absolute sense. I mean, I sold the project so well and the fit so well, I probably could have charged more. And even if before that call, they wouldn't have paid that. By the time that call was over, they could tell themselves a story that this is worth it and I've got to hire Jay. Yeah. And we also, we talked about this in the past where sometimes when you leave money on the table as a creative, that's just good marketing. You are, you are selling yourself, you, you, you called it under, undercharging here. But the reality is like when I buy a $5 hamburger that costs $5 and tastes like a $5 hamburger, I'm not telling anyone about it. When I buy a $5 hamburger that costs $5 and tastes 10 or $15, it's a luxury gourmet hamburger. I'm telling everyone around town about that. So a lot of times, that's what we look at as our marketing budget. Because we are so good at the price that we, that we deliver our services, people shout at the rooftops to all their friends that we're the person to hire for that need. Case in point, when we just hung out in Nashville, within five minutes of me being at your house, you were selling me on where I should go get a hamburger. And then we did. <laughs> that's true. All right, Jay. So I, th- I think this is a good place to kind of wrap this conversation up. For those who are into this kind of conversation about sales, what where can people do to kind of connect with you or any resources you might have for them for that, con- that sort of continuing this conversation? You can connect with me anywhere at Jay Klaus, Twitter, Instagram, or where I'm most active. 
I have a free five-day course on making more money as a freelancer. It's called Five Ways in Five Days to Make More Money Freelancing. You can get that at freelancing.school. You can see the link there. And if you like podcasts, check out Creative Elements. Awesome. Jay, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. This is fun. Yeah.